So we're, we're very grateful to uh, Lillian for bringing her old man across. Uh, and uh, it's great to have you, Daniel. Over to you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's have a fun interactive back and forth. This isn't so much a proper talk. A proper talk. <laughs> proper talk. This is, uh, so I'll put some ideas in front of you. And let's engage later, okay? So be thinking of questions, feedback. Um, so let's jump in, huh? Shall we? I heard the story of a, f ooh, check, one, two. Yes, Lord, speak. I heard. at dinner time to have the dinner table overturned and his parents jumping on each other and fighting and using all each other's skin and his five-year-old boys jumping on top of the pile trying to pull his mother off of his father and his father off of his mother and just saying can't we work this out can't we work this out stop and he would go to bed I heard the, this boy say that he would go to bed most nights and just cry himself to sleep. And he would, he never went to church. His family didn't go to church, but something in him knew that this was wrong and that there was a God. And he would cry himself to sleep and, and pray to God, all I want one day is a happy family. All I want is a happy family. One day when this boy was nine, he decided, you know what? I heard about this church up the street. So he walked two miles to church by himself and walked in the back of the room the band was doing their rehearsal and the worship leader saw this little nine-year-old boy standing by himself and said hey young man come up here um, who are you here with I'm here by myself how'd you get here I walked oh really well come sit with me and my wife we sit right down here come up on the stage during the rehearsal and just be with us and this little nine-year-old boy is watching during the rehearsal and then sits with the the worship leader and his wife during the service and then after the service he said how about we take you out to lunch and then we'll take you home he said well sure and so this little nine-year-old boy got swept up into this church and he said why don't you come back tonight we have a choir rehearsal and there's a kids production coming up and you can sing in it so every week this little nine-year-old boy came back to church and men in the church started picking him up. They had a little rotation of men who said, well, I'll get him this week. So they picked this little boy up, bring him to church. He goes into the choir rehearsal. He's a part of the band practice. And this boy, all of a sudden, over the course of a few months, found a family with this church. He'd go back home, and his parents would beat each other and yell and scream. And there was hatred and violence. And, and the, the home was toxic. But he'd come to church, and he found this community of love and friendship and kindness so this little boy, one day, he grows up, he's 15. His dad calls home and says, tell your mom, I'm going to be late for dinner. Uh, don't wait on me. He was working out in the oil fields of Oklahoma. And uh, he, this boy was sitting with his mom on the couch watching television. And across the bottom of the screen, it said, nine men killed an oil explosion tonight. And then the knock on the door. Police officer standing there. 
is this the so-and-so family? Yes, it is. I need you to sit down. Tonight, your husband and your father was killed in an oil explosion. This 15-year-old boy is heartbroken, and the men of the church here, and they come over that night. They surround him. They pray for him. They pick him up on Sunday. They start taking him. They show him how to interview for his first job. Help him get his first job. How's your mom doing? What does she need? How can we support your family? This little boy starts helping lead worship at the church as a 15-year-old and continues to grow on, grow up in this church and has this community of people around him. When he's 19, he's the only child. His mom calls him and says, I've got a headache. Can you bring me some medicine? And a couple weeks goes by. Man, these headaches are just taking me over. So the 19-year-old boy drives his mom to the hospital. They discover she has a stage 4 brain tumor. And within a couple weeks, she's dead. So he's a sophomore in college, lost his dad when he's 15, lost his mom when he was 19. And here he is, the church just surrounds him. They hear about it. Oh, we're, we're so sorry. What do you need? And we'll help you settle the estate. We'll help you sell the house. We'll help you do, you know. You just say the word. We need. He's continuing to lead every Sunday in this church. And this family comes around him. This church family comes around him. He meets a, a young lady in the church when he's 20. And they start dating and falling in love. And the worship leader who found him when he was a nine-year-old boy is still the worship leader there. And then becomes the senior pastor when this guy's 22. So he hires the 22-year-old little boy that he found in the back of the room when he was nine as the worship leader, and he becomes the senior pastor. And then he officiates, that worship leader who became a senior pastor, officiates the wedding for this young worship leader and the girl that he met in the church. And this boy grows up, and he was scared out of his mind as a little five-year-old boy laying in bed. God, all I want one day is a happy family. Here he is at 22, married to this woman, leading worship in the church got the family of God all around him. That little five-year-old boy is my dad. And that's why I love the church. That's why the local church, to me, is non-negotiable. It matters. It's the family of God. Now, I could have stood up here and said to you, you should all go to church. Church matters, and the Bible says, you know, don't forsake the assembling of thyselves together. You know? It must be fun for you all to hear an Oklahoma accent, huh? <laughs> oh, my goodness, what is this? <laughs> what is he saying? That's what we think when you talk. Um, just kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I could have, you know, read your scripture and told you, Go to church. Or I could tell you a story. Why the church matters. I could, I could show you rather than tell you. And people are crying out, show me, don't just tell me. So today I want to talk about the power of storytelling with uh, sharing the gospel. You know, uh, Chuck and Taryn and this whole thing is... One, we want to carry a sense of urgency. Two, we want to live a sustainable pace and be able to do this for the long haul. Uh, the sense of urgency is, look, we're, this is Scotland where the enemy is, is 
threatening, where the, where the kingdoms of this world are trying to rise up and crush the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And of course, we know that that ultimately is a futile fight. The kingdom of, of our Christ will reign. He'll reign forever. We know that. But, but we're here because we think God has called us to this work and because this work matters. And we're asking the question, how do we do this work effectively? How do we tell the story of Jesus in the most compelling way? How do we carry it forward? If I would have told you, go to church, go to church, church go to the church matters. If I would have sort of beat you with the Bible about going to church, your eyes would have glazed over. But as I was telling this story of this little five-year-old boy who became nine, who lost his dad at 15, who lost his mom at 19, what I saw was an attentiveness. Where's it going? What's about to happen next? And there's something about a story that hooks in, and it, it takes you somewhere. It, we, all, we are storied human beings. We live by story. When someone says to you, hey, what's your, tell me about your life, what do you do? You narrate the story that you've learned about your life, because stories have meaning. Ancient Israel was deeply steeped in the great storytelling tradition. Um, Nathan the prophet, David, David was, he was crushing it. He had so many great things going on and he was a man after God's own heart and he grew up in the fields of obscurity and he was faithful with his father's sheep and he just didn't care and he was taking wine and cheese and to his brothers who were standing at the battle line and then he just sort of accidentally stumbles into this Goliath story and goes, who's this uncircumcised Philistine defying the armies of the Lord our God? Well, he's going down today and David does his thing and he strikes him down and he cuts off it. David's like, what? You guys have been living like this, being taunted? This is simple work. David was crushing it until the time when the kings go out for war. And he decided he'd stay home this time. He got lazy. He got sloppy. He's up on the balcony when he should have been out in the fields doing his work, leading the people. David's, uh, you all know the story, Bathsheba, he, he falls, he takes her, takes, takes, takes. It's said seven times in that story, he took. And then the prophet Nathan is spoken to by God and Nathan wanders in. Clearly, something's up. This is a meeting where God is going to confront. But what does Nathan do? Hey, David, don't you know the commandments? Hey, David, you know, remember, Nathan goes, hey, um, there was this really poor man, and he had one little ewe lamb that he loved so much. And then there was this wealthy man, and he had flocks and flocks and flocks, innumerable numbers of sheep and lambs, and he, he had everything at his disposal. And then he sees this one poor man who's got one little ewe lamb, and he decides to take. And David goes, what the heck? This guy's got to pay for it. He's going to die. You know, we, we got to do what's right. Justice has got to happen here in this story. And Nathan goes, you are that man. And David falls on his knees and he repents. I've sinned against the Lord my God. Against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight so that you would be just in judging me. 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Nathan doesn't come directly at it and say, hey, I heard you had an affair. He said there was one little poor man with one little sheep. And then there was a wealthy He tells a story. And stories have a way of sneaking up on you. Stories have a way of coming around the defense mechanisms that we all build, and they, they come angularly. They, they sneak in, and they, they, they cause us to melt. David falls on his knees to the story. Jesus shows up, this enigmatic teacher going around the region of Galilee and Palestine, and he's healing the sick and raising the dead and feeding 5,000. And, and these crowds gather around because they might get a free meal. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very self-interested. They're, they're, they're just, whoa. And then Jesus starts talking in Matthew 13, and he tells seven parables. The kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. There was a farmer who went out into the field. There was a master who owned a vineyard. There were workers that were hired at 6 a.m. And then there were workers that were hired at 5 p.m. And they both got the same wage. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom is like a little seed that goes. The kingdom of heaven is like, and they're scratching their heads. And even the apostles, who are, the disciples who are following Jesus, right after he tells these seven stories in one chapter, the kingdom of heaven is like seven times. Matthew 13. They pull him aside and say, Master, what are you doing? Like, just tell them straight. Teach them theology. You know, pistol whip them with the Torah. Get them back on track. <laughs> and Jesus keeps dropping little stories, little parables. He maddened the disciples. But why? Because Jesus knew we are storied creatures. I mean, think about this. People are spending hundreds of pounds to go watch Hamilton, right? Hundreds of pounds to go watch Les Mis. I mean, we, we just care about stories. We go to movies. We read books. But what was the result of all those stories that Jesus told? said large crowds gathered around him. And the question is why? Why tell stories? Because, like I said earlier, we all have carefully constructed defense mechanisms around our hearts. You will not mess with my heart. You will not tell me what I can and cannot do. You will not tell me that I cannot live my own truth, right? This is the world that we live in. Write your own story. Live your own truth. Do what feels good. So don't mess with me, but a story, again, has this way. It's porous. It sneaks in. And Jesus told these parables, and you know what the word parable actually means. You, you would have heard this, and this is kind of slang. But para is to like throw alongside. And so Jesus would take these stories, and he would throw them down alongside his listeners, and he would walk away. And the story would work on them, and it would mess with them, and they would be scratching their heads. They'd be laying down at night. Jesus is long gone. Hours ago, he, they heard this story. But this story was just working on them. Parables are like little truth bombs. You throw them down alongside someone, and you walk away, and let, you let the Spirit of the Lord do the work. 
people are overwhelmed with data, figures, facts, science, all of the, it's just overwhelming. And so maybe Jesus knew that a story would be a little more palatable, that a story would be a little more easily received. And stories help people get caught up into an alternate reality and they help invite people into a different way of being. Emily Dickinson, great poet, great writer, she said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, for the truth must dazzle gradually. Think about that. Look at that phrase. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, for the truth must dazzle gradually. If it's true that we have defense mechanisms built up, if it's true that we come into situations and we want to protect ourselves from any kind of threat, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Because the truth must dazzle gradually. I think that little story of that five-year-old boy is telling the truth, but it's telling it slant. Telling it directly would have been to, would have been to say, hey, all of you, you know, do you know that the stats say that people only come to church once or twice a month? And shame on you. God's people are supposed to go to church. Shame. And that's direct. Telling it slant is, hey, I heard the story of a little five-year-old boy who became nine, who became 15, who lost his mother at 19, and this church saved his life. The church matters. Telling the truth and telling it slant and letting it dazzle gradually. So here's the, the, the trick. I think, I think we need to move from teller to storyteller. From teller to storyteller. We aren't called to shout at the world. We aren't called to yell at the darkness. We're called to shine a light. We're called to be different. And, and why, don't, why don't we take the chance, instead of just telling people what they should be doing, let's, let's tell stories that show them the different alternative that God has called us into. As I said earlier, people are crying, don't just tell me, but show me. So my, my thought here at this, uh, we'll take just a break and talk about this here in a second, but we're called to tell the story of Jesus to the world and how we tell the story matters, right? I've heard, I heard someone say, the one who tells the best story wins. And there are many versions of what the good life is, right? Um, Many versions of what the good life is. But who can tell the best story? And I think we can tell a better story than the people who are saying promiscuity is the good life. We can tell a better story than the people who are trying to make us think that, you know, the, the, the people marketing the alcohol, right? Hey, drink a lot of alcohol because if you do, your life will be better. We've got a better story than that. We've got a place where, where the young and the old can find home. We've got a place where the rich and the poor can find home. We've got a place where the educated and the uneducated can find home. We've got a place where there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ. And we've got to be able to tell that story so beautifully so that the world goes, wait, what? Are you serious? Where does that happen? I thought this was a world where people fight and whoever's the strongest wins. No, whoever's the servant of all wins. 
So we're how we tell the story matters. Let's take a break there and talk it out. Uh, I've got another section that I want to teach through, but what are you hearing? What stands out? What questions come to mind? Quick observations. It probably would be good if we didn't like give a quiet time. You know, the Lord was speaking to me the other day, and I turned to Leviticus 7. Uh, like, you know, so no quiet time journal entries here. But thoughts. What, what do you got? From teller to storyteller. Yes, sir. Very good. Thank you. From teller to storyteller. What else? The power of story. Telling all the truth, but telling it slant. What comes to mind? Questions? Rebukes? Strong rebukes? Yes, ma'am. That's right. Yeah. Tyndale, when he translated his version of the Bible, which ended up costing him his life, he said he translated it because he wanted the plowboy to be able to understand it. And I think stories put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Right? Like, you, you want the story to be accessible. You want people to go, oh, that's what God's like? I didn't know God could be like that. I thought he was this guy in the ivory tower who's mad all the time. No, God is the God of love. So that's great. Thank you. Simplicity. Yes. Yeah. Compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Truly human. Yes. So when we can tell the story in a way that's rooted in humanity, rooted in the dailiness of life, Rooted in the carpool line for the stay-at-home mom. Rooted in uh, telling the story where a banker who's writing contracts all day can understand it. It's, it's compassionate to get the story to people where they are. Great point. Great point. Yes, sir, and then we'll come over here. Uh-huh. Yeah. How do you, if you don't have a story, how do you create it so that it doesn't become a vague analogy? Honestly, so much of my prayer time during the week as a weekly preacher is, Lord, what is the story? Because you can do all the study, and you should. You've you got to wrestle it. You've got to go to the text, open up the commentary, do your work. But I'm always saying, Lord, what is the one thing? What's the story that's going to crack this thing open for people? Um, so make it a part of your prayer. And I promise you, if you'll live before the Spirit, He'll show you something. He'll give you something for what the people need this week. 
But yeah, vague analogies that don't have any power behind them, like just, just cut it out of your sermon. It, it'd be better not to give it than to give something that's lifeless. So I'm always saying, like, like God, honestly, in prayer, I'll be, Lord, I want you to help me feel it this week. If I get up and preach something that I haven't felt that doesn't move me, if I haven't cried over this, if I haven't laid on my face over this, if I haven't wrestled you about this, if I don't know how this looks on the ground for people in their daily lives, I don't want to go up. So, But if you will do the work of going before him and saying, Lord, please, 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 what's the story? How do you want? Because the, the scriptures have to be felt. It has to touch it has to touch us in the deepest place. And so when the preacher stands up having been touched already in the deepest place, I think the people have a chance to be touched in the deepest place. So don't ever give something out that hasn't been processed through your humanity. So he'll give you a story. That's a long way of saying he'll give you a story. Great question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 A journey. Right. Yeah, and where is this going? Why does this matter? Why are you taking up precious time to tell me, like, surely this is going somewhere, and I've got to know. Yes. Yes. I love it. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yes, ma'am. How do you respond to storytelling-based preaching when people are questioning that and they would like more teaching, right? I think it's a I think it's a both and. So, if you if you would hear me preach on a weekly basis, I don't just stand up and tell stories. There is teaching. There is, okay, here's what the text says, and here's what this Greek word means, and here's what Jesus was doing, and here's the social context of the day. And here, But all of that, to me, is building to a good story. All of that has to come. The tip of the spear is, now this is what it looks like in life. Right? If people are just getting good data, oh, that's an interesting thing. Oh, they did an archaeological dig there one time, and they found this. People are saying, who cares? At the end of the day, it's like, tell me, like, I have, to, I have to take this in. I have to feel it, and I have to know that it matters, so show me. So there is telling. There, there is telling. There is teaching. There is deep theological work. There is lots of study, and, and you've got to synthesize this and, and teach people something. But to me, it, it comes to a head. It comes to a climax in a story that says, now, this is what it looks like. Let me show you what it looks like for God in Christ to forgive his enemies. It looks like Corey Ten Boom. Let me tell you what it looks like to bless those that cursed you. It looks like the Amish people in Pennsylvania who, when this guy storms into their school and kills 13 people, they go to his funeral and they weep with his wife and children. So it's one thing to go, you should forgive people. The Bible says forgive, right? And then you, and but it's another thing holy to say, let me show you what forgiveness looks like. Let me show you what forgiveness costs. 
And so it is a mixture of teaching, but then let the story do the work, right? Let the story open the soul up. So it's a both and. Thank you for asking that question because I don't want you to get the impression that you're just supposed to stand up and tell like six or seven random stories and call that a sermon. <laughs> but let the story do the emotional work and sneak behind the defenses and open the heart to Jesus. Great. Thank you, Julie. Yes, sir. Yes, that's right, yeah. Should you rehearse? Should you play through a story so that so you're not standing up winging it? Absolutely. I'm always praying during the week. I'm saying, Lord, help me to stick my landings. Think about a gymnast. You can do all the, but if you fall and go like this, so it's not a complete. It's not complete until you go. Right. So so I'm thinking through what does it look like for me to stick my landings? And I know that, OK, five years old, he walked into the, the church. I know that. It, or sorry, five years old. He's the boy pulling his parents off each other. Nine years old. He walks into the church and he is seen by a worship leader. Fifteen. His dad dies. What will happen? Here's a moment of tension. Oh, the church takes him in even more. Nineteen. Now he's all alone in this world. And what will happen? This is a crisis moment. Boom. He's hired at the church. He falls in love with this girl, and here he is to this day. And what I didn't tell you is that pastor is 78 years old to this day who found him, and my dad is 63, and the pastor came and spent a week in Colorado Springs staying with us last year and played golf. To this day, there is deep-rooted friendship and relationship there. That, that man became his spiritual father. And so, yeah, I'm thinking through the movements of the story, but you also want to preserve, you don't want to like write it out in at least the way I go. You want to preserve the, the dynamism of it. Let it live. Let it sneak up on you as the storyteller. Um, so there's this mixture of, of being prepared and thinking each transition through, but letting it preserve its liveliness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, are the great question. Are the stories always based on reality or or can they be fiction? I think I think they can be either or and I also think they can be a blend. So let me let me tell you what I mean by that. A blend of reality and fiction. We have this thing called podcasts today, which means a story is never private. So be careful. If I stand up and say, "Well, this pastor you know, there was this pastor at the church I grew up in. Well, anyone who knows me knows what church I grew up in. And so they're automatically going, okay, so he's at Victory in Tulsa. What are, okay, and this pastor did this, and they go, oh, he's talking about that person. And they could share it with that family member, and it just does damage, right? So I am very often taking stories that are true and veiling them to protect people, changing the details just a little bit. 
but preserving the spirit and the truth of what actually happened. But but you, just the media age that we live in, you get a little one-minute clip and someone throws it up on YouTube and someone in a completely different country goes, oh, he's attacking me? He's telling my story and making it public? So I, I think this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was telling true stories that he made up. Because they're true to human humanity. They're true to life. They happen everywhere, wherever you go. And so he can make up the details and... But, but it's very true. Does that make sense? So if I'm telling true stories, very often I'll tell them on myself. But if I'm telling someone else's story, I'll protect it while telling the truth of, in the spirit of what happened. Does that make sense? So, great question. Yeah. This is why I think fiction is beautiful too. C.S. Lewis and, I mean, uh, Tolkien and so many of the great writers have told us the truth by telling it through fiction. So, yes. Yes, ma'am. That's a good that's a good point you bring up. I don't tell stories that are active. So a lot of times preachers get up and they they air their dirty laundry in the name of uh, well, I'm just being vulnerable. No, you aren't. You're being reckless. You're not healed yet. So don't do that. Um, a lot of times they do it. And it's a, it's like a it's a it's a hit. It's like a drug. It's catharsis. Oh, I, I get my conscience off of me for a little bit because I just I just told the truth. No, you're. So I tell stories that have been sort of sealed up by the Holy Spirit, and they're coming out of a place of healing. And then other stories, you just wait. You let the Lord do His work, and it's just not time. Uh, but the stories that I have told that are painful from our church. The Lord's done a deep work there and restored that. So I can now, I can make that available to people from a place of health. So don't, don't use stories. Don't manipulate a moment with a story that's got pathos in it that's not been addressed by the Spirit yet. Uh, so you got to protect. It's, it's like that don't cast pearls before swine thing. Like there's something beautiful that the Lord is doing and if you share one too early you make the congregation swine <laughs> it, it, it's just wrong it's just not it's holy ground so take off your shoes and, and respect it and so you've just got a sense for you, you got to gauge the vital signs of when a story is right and when a story is wrong and be sensitive to that so does that make sense thank you great question yes ma'am I stink at that. Sure. It, how much is natural? How much is learned and hard work? Um, yes. <laughs> no, uh, I'll go more to that. If you stink at storytelling, you can learn. I There are things that I stink at that I'm having to force myself into getting better at. So we are all deficient in some areas, right? I got to be able to teach. I can't just stand up, like I said, and wing it with stories. So, so you, you have to just know where you're, where you're good, and you have to know where you're deficient, 
and backfill it. So if storytelling is difficult for you, pay attention to the masters. I mean, they're out there. Uh, here's a fun little uh, rabbit trail if you want to chase it. Walter Brueggemann, great Old Testament theologian. He's 84, maybe 85 now. Walter Brueggemann, uh, you can YouTube Walter Brueggemann's Psalms of Vengeance. Right, we got these psalms of vengeance in the Psalter. And and you read them and you go, oh my Lord, that shouldn't even be in the Bible. Dash their teeth against the rocks, oh God. Crush their babies and like the enemies. Oh. And Brueggemann, who is this wildly brilliant, one of the most vital minds on the planet, Old Testament scholar par excellence, in five minutes, he takes you through the Psalms of Vengeance in a way where you're sitting on the edge of your seat and you're going, what? I had no idea this was there. I had no idea that these still matter for us today. And he does it by telling just kind of an old curmudgeonly grandpa story. And so watch that and see what he does there. Pay attention to the idiosyncrasies. He's got his watch. And his little watch is jangling while he's telling the story. He's holding it. And, and he's using a different voice. <laughs> Dynamics matter. Tempo matters. You got to feel it. And so, so if you're not a great storyteller, like learn, learn from the great storytellers. What do they do that makes people sit on the edge of their seat and then take notes and then practice it? So I, I, great question. We're all deficient in certain areas. And there's work that can be done to get better at it. But just know where God's given you talents and focus there. Uh, so... All of our preaching should look different. That's the body of Christ. That's the beauty of it. So, great, great question. Is this okay? Am I like throwing your life away right now? Am I wasting your time? Because something in me goes, man, you're wasting their time with this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there was this one time in Scotland where I just wasted people's lives. Now let's stand and pray. Okay. Um, one more. And if you want me to... Uh, move into a next like little teaching segment here on six movement the six movements of scripture I can do that or we can stay here so I'll let you think that through yes sir yeah how do you preserve the personal liveliness of a story with repeated telling great question um, stories are funny um, if God is alive then the world is dynamic nothing static about God. God is not. God, you know, the difference between an idol and God is that an idol can't surprise you. God can surprise you. He's alive. And stories, because God is the storyteller, God is the and God, he's filled the world with stories that live, right? And so they just, they do. Every time I tell that story of my dad, something else comes out and a unique thing is emphasized and something I never thought sneaks up. And it just, it's just the playfulness of stories. Um, and sometimes you got to put them away. Like there's been a few years where I haven't told that story. But I'm going to tell it again at some point. So you just need to know, okay, that's good. I'm going to put that on the shelf over there. And when the Spirit tells me to pick it back up, I'll tell it. 
but not before then. Um, so sometimes there is story fatigue and you got to let it rest. And I can't imagine being a preacher who like itinerates and goes around and just preaches the same thing every single time. And like that would kill me. Um, the weekly thing of, okay, Lord, what's the new thing you're wanting to do? What's the fresh story? That's invigorating to someone like me. So um, just know when you need to press pause on a story, but know that it can live again if you've told it once. It can live again. And it'll probably live in a different way because there'll be a different congregation who hears it and the Spirit wants to say something else to them. So, great question. Yes, ma'am. Does reflecting on your life and experiences help you tell more stories? I think so. All week long. I, I just live and I live with a sense of What's happening right now matters. Uh, the hospital visit that I did last week, it's not just for that moment. It's not just for that family. Someone else is going to need this later. So I carry around a bag with me, basically, and I tuck stories away. It's the psyche. It's the... It's, it's the I'm just... It's just... You never know when you're going to need that moment. And Jesus is the one who gives us permission to tuck stories away and tell them. The kingdom of heaven is like. Because I saw it the other day in the hospital. With this man who's on his deathbed. And he was unafraid. In a world of fear and anxiety. And in a world of jockeying. In a world of dog eat dog and I've got to climb over you so I can get to the top. Here's this man who's just unafraid. And Jesus wants us to live this way. And people in the pew, they go, oh, thank you for telling me it's okay to not be anxious in an anxious world. Thank you for telling me there's a different future out there for me. So I don't, I, I'm, I, maybe it's just the way I'm wired to your question earlier. Maybe it's just the way I'm wired. But everything is going in the file. Because I think it's going to be useful later. So, yes. Do do I write them down? Um, sometimes I'll write them down in a journal, but just kind of the bullet points. Other people they're wired in a way that they'd write it verbatim. You know, here's what happened. For me, I'm just wanting to go. Okay, I just want to preserve that moment. There it was. I'm gonna and and it just sort of composts in your spirit. Right? You just put it on the compost pile. And somehow it gets reused. And it's it, it brings life later. So, great. Yes? The ultimate story. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Because this is going to take me into the movement. How do you tell the ultimate story? So, can we do the Bible in six movements? Is that okay? Okay. The Bible is drama because the Bible is drama, guys. God is a really good storyteller, and most people don't know what to do with the Bible, which means we throw away large portions of it, completely ignore it, right? We, Leviticus, oh, that was just God had a bad day. <laughs> no, do you know Leviticus fits? That it's, it's, it's useful, it's meaningful. There's an absolute purpose. 
for Leviticus. So can we just talk through the Bible in six movements? First, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And before that, the earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the primordial waters. Minor key. And you got to know how the Bible feels. you got to help people feel it. When people go, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, no, like, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of chaos. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. New possibilities. Vitality is coming. There's a, there's a horizon out there. What might happen? Out of the chaos and the, the darkness and the void, the Spirit brings up out of it light, which leads to life, and there's plants, and there's herbs, and there's gardens. And, and God saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. He's just tripping over himself at his goodness. Oh, my word. And there's this beautiful garden, and he creates humans in his own image, male and female. He created them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and take dominion. This place is yours. I've made you in my image, and I'll go be my superintendents of the garden. Stay away from the tree. But it's all yours. It's a creation. It's good. From the, from the minor key, it lifts into this glorious anthem of praise and expectancy and hopefulness creation. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3. <gasps> Boom! Face plant. The fall. Humans tried to take the story into their own hands. We've got it from here. They raise the middle finger to heaven and say, we don't need you anymore. Thanks for the planet. It's ours. And the enemy seduces them and, you know, God's holding out on you. Which is the ultimate lie. So when I'm talking to unbelievers people who don't know the story, to have the simple understanding that the first thing the serpent said was, God's holding out on you. Like, that's a human feeling. Like, there's something more out there. What God, God's, God's trying to pull the wool over my eyes. He's trying to make life difficult for me. God is trying to see if I can jump through all the hoops. And that's, that's what all those commandments are. Those commandments are just God trying to make me trip and fall so he can wag his big finger at me from heaven and say, that's what a lot of people think the concept of God represents. No, the concept of God is this God who is the good creator, who makes us in his image, who invites us to tend the garden. And we take that story, and, in, and after the fall, what's the first thing that happens? Cain kills Abel. Sin leads to destruction. Sin leads to death. So creation fall. We know that story. It, it, it crescendos in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and oh my goodness, what is going on here? And Genesis 11 is this final blow to humanity. This is what sin does. It scatters you to the four winds. It confuses your language. People can't understand you anymore because sin makes you unintelligible. That's what Genesis 11 is trying to say. So Genesis 1 and 2 Creation, Genesis 3 through 11, fall, scattering. Genesis 12, Israel. And God called Abram out of Haran, 
And he said, leave your country, leave your family, leave your home, and go to a place I will show you. Genesis 12 is the pivot point where God gets the story off of the, the ash heap, and he gets it back on track into goodness and fullness of life. I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing, and through all your descendants, the nations of the world will find themselves blessed. Genesis 12 is this moment of redemption. I'm going to make a family for myself. So creation, fall, Israel. Israel, he's got to constitute a people. They're led into slavery in Egypt for 400 plus years. And what happens over that time is you forget how to live because you've never had freedom. And so what does he do? He gives them Torah. These are my words. This is what it looks like to live. So Leviticus, oh God, it is uh, numbers, you know. No, this is God showing a people who've been slaves for 400 plus years how to get back on track. And so he keeps them in line. He, he shows them freedom, creates muscle memory and freedom. But that story of Israel is always leading to movement number four, which is Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to sum them up. I came to be the full expression of Torah. I am Torah made flesh. I am God's plan made flesh plopped down right here in front of you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld God's glory. The glory is of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the climax of Israel's story. And now, Jew or Gentile, if you'll follow Jesus, you'll find your way into everlasting life. If you'll follow Jesus, you'll find freedom. If you'll follow Jesus, you'll find blessing. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curse, curses, you just follow Jesus and it'll work. And if you run away from Jesus, your life breaks. So creation, fall, Israel, summed up in Jesus, and Jesus constitutes the church. Movement number five. He calls the people, come and follow me. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit's poured out. Pentecost, and they go. It, it's an undoing. If you read Pentecost story in Acts 2, it's an undoing of Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where there was confusion of language. Now people are speaking in tongues, and each person hears the gospel as in their own tongue. It's the reversal. It's bringing the human story back on track. So we know it's the church, that's movement number five, and then number six is new creation. Do you know where the story is going? Revelation 21, then I saw new heavens and a new earth coming down out of heaven, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and like a bride beautifully adorned for her bridegroom. And, and it, man, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, do you know where the story's going? No more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death, no more war, no more poverty, no more children with aching bellies in, in the Middle East crying out for home. God will make all things new. So if you can understand the broad storied sweep, the narrative arc of Scripture, you'll be able to locate passages like Leviticus and you go, oh, of course God would give them really good, clear rules when they're just coming out of slavery. That, that's gracious of a God. I've got little kids. When they were two and three, when we got by the road, you know what I said to them? Do not go into the road or else you will die. Now Lillian's 12, almost 12. She can cross the street and ride her bike. Why? Because she understands the threat and she knows how to navigate it. 
Well, Leviticus is God talking to his young children saying, do not do this or it will not go well for you. You got to be exaggerated. You got to be very clear. There are not broad lanes that you give little children. You give them very specific. Well, think about some of those rules at the beginning. Is constituting his people so that when they bump into Jesus, they know how to live in freedom. You don't have to live with all those rules like that, like you did when you were a little two or three year old. Does this make sense? Okay. The narrative arc of scripture, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, new creation. So that's a helpful way of understanding the big story that we're in and helping people locate themselves within it. Did I just overwhelm you? Please forgive me if I did. Questions, thoughts, observations? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Thank you. Karen, right? Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are these people who are not believers? Yeah. So you go back to your work on Monday as a provocation to the world. You did what? You spent holiday days doing what? (laughs) And you go, you know what? We believe in God, and we believe God created a people, and these people are supposed to be a blessing to the world. And so church leaders from all over Scotland and part of the UK gathered together to talk about what it looks like to go back into their places of of life and work, into their neighborhoods and schools, into their jobs, to be a blessing and to care for God's people and to feed the hungry and to, like, we we just got our heads together to see what God would would do to to make us better at that job of blessing the world. We just want to be a blessing. That is so strange. And, and... And they go, to, no, listen, here's what happens, though. They go to bed that night. Can you tell me your name? And they go, what is it about Jackie? She's just different. She's, Jackie. <laughs> you don't know that. But, but you drop down a little parable. Your life is a parable. It's this little truth bomb. And they go, well, gosh. She like spends her money to bless other people and all I do is spend my money on myself. She's just so gentle and kind and, and, and whenever, my, whenever that annoying person at the office sort of annoys me, I go off on them and Jackie just sort of turns the other. She's a blessing. She, she honors those people. She makes them feel like home. And so you live as a provocation and, and you look for a little 90 second snippet to, to cast 
you know, this weekend, this weekend in Glasgow was like. And you throw a little parable down next to them and it goes to work. And then I promise you there's nine months from now, life is going to happen for someone in your office. Life is ha it's going to happen. And who are they going to call? They're going to call Jackie because the peace of God and they wouldn't say it this way, but the peace of God that passes all understanding is guarding her heart and mind by Christ Jesus. And she just knows a different way. So you just stay ready. Keep your phone by you because people are going to come looking for you. So you're salt, you're light, you're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So just go and, and live before them that they might see your good works and end up praising your Father in heaven, Matthew 5. So good job, Jackie. Yes, sir. Dorothy Sayers, yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Dang. Yeah. 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 Yep. That's beautiful. I might just need to use that. <laughs> As I always say, you know, Dorothy Sayers, Peter Whimsey. There you go. That's all right. Thank you. We're all borrowing. Beautiful. Okay, so I want to be sensitive. It's 3 o'clock. Okay, we're done. God bless you. God keep you. God make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you, Lord. Smile big on you and grant you peace. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. much love. <laughs>